So last week, maybe turn me down a little bit. I don't want to. Okay. Last week, we were able to witness one of, if not the greatest trial in Abraham's life. A trial that actually revealed God's faithfulness in sharpening and shaping Abraham and enabling Abraham's dependence on the Lord to such immense degrees that Abraham was willing, while not understanding, but willing to sacrifice his own son. And you go through that narrative and you get to that point to where he has that knife up and the angel of the Lord stops him and then God reiterates blessing to Abraham and Abraham experiences the joy of this good news that his son is not going to die. And then you look at chapter 22 and after this amazing experience, what comes right after that? If you have your Bibles open, what what comes right after this scenario? A genealogy. And I'll tell you what, Nothing says celebration like genealogies, right? Why is there a genealogy coming right after this? I'm going to read it briefly here. It's uh, 22, starting in verse 20. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also had borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Hesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Meacah. Again, what is the point of these genealogies? Now, there's a couple of purposes, I think, at least, at a minimum. Uh, one would be, if you look at the number of children that are listed here, number of boys, there's 12. And so they kind of coincide with the 12 tribes of Israel. The Israelites later on are going to interact with some of the people groups that come from these people. But I think that there's a more immediate reason for this genealogy. And it actually is the icing on the cake. It really is the celebration that's to be added here. Because it says here, after these things, it was told Abraham. There is one female daughter that's listed in this list. Who is it? Rebecca. Why is that such good news? Because God had promised to bring the serpent crusher someday through the seed of the woman. And if Isaac doesn't have a wife, then this is not going to continue to go on. But not only has God revealed his promise through giving Abraham his son, Isaac, and affirming that, through that last trial, but also God is saying to Abraham, and he's going to get married. I have this woman set apart for him. Oh, this is, this is good news. And then we enter into Genesis 23. But before we read on Genesis 23, I just want to ask you, how many of you, maybe like me, when you go through a season of Maybe, maybe a season of excitement or a season of rest or a season of smooth sailing. Do you also have in your mind, where's the storm? 
Any, anybody else like that with me? It's like smooth sailing, but this cannot be what it's going to stay like. Something's got to happen. And so you even, like, maybe even ruin your smooth sailing because you just know a storm's coming, right? Okay, some of you are like me in that. And we know, and the reason why we think that is because we live in a broken world. We know life can't always be a bed of roses. If people's lives are always a bed of roses, then they're not living in reality. And yet at the same time, when trials come into our lives, we really struggle with that, don't we? I mean, I know I've had experiences where I've thought, Lord, can't you just give me a break? Or, or why do you want to crush me? Do you want me to enjoy nothing in this life? And sometimes it can feel like God gifts, gifts you just to take it away or to rain on your parade. And we can be tempted, I think, Maybe many people have been tempted to think God is the cosmic killjoy. But I want to ask you, is God a killjoy? No, pastor, that is the right answer to say no. He's he's not. Does God just want to ruin things? No. He is good in all of his ways. And if God and his intention is to grow us through trials... Those of us who actually go through trials with faith can increasingly affirm the goodness of God. How? How? Because trials remind us that this world is not our home. Trials remind us that there is an eternity that awaits us, that God is preparing us for. This life This life is a blip on the screen of our existence. And if we truly believe God cares for us now and is preparing us for eternity, then we can endure with hope because the trials do not negate God's goodness and provision. The trials are God's means through which he even provides greater eternal goodness and provision. Now, why do I say all that? Because this is what we continue to see in Abraham as God blesses him with Isaac and the hope of Rebekah. And then after all this good news, oh, all these wonderful things, Sarah dies. Again, we're called back even in this chapter, to look at Abraham and see how God has developed Abraham's faith. So the main idea of the sermon today is that God's promises are planted in this life and bear fruit in eternity. To put it another way, God's promises are not extinguished by death. Death doesn't win. As a matter of fact, God's promises always flourish through death. The only way to get to the eternal promises of God is through death, and the only one who can defeat death is God. Only God can make that happen. So the application of this text would be we ought to trust God's promises and live today with eternity in view, even in the face of death. 
trust God's promises, live today with eternity in view, even in the face of death. And maybe I will add, not, not just physical death, but the dying that we experience from living in this fallen world, the trials, the difficulties. Trust God and live today with eternity in view, even in the face of all of the things that come because death has entered this world. So I want to go back to the main idea and emphasize God's promises are planted in this life. Now before reading, before reading the narrative of Sarah's death, I want to read to you a promise that was made by God in Genesis 17, verse 8. God said, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So God promised Abraham that he would have the land of his sojourning. Up to this point in the story, though, the emphasis has been on a child. Where is this child? Where is this offspring? When is he going to show up? In the midst of Abraham's sojourning, is Abraham going to receive any land in the midst of this life? I think about the wandering Israelites, as they're the ones that are first reading this, and they're being called to the land of Canaan. Why should they even go to that land? Has there ever been any claim to this land in the past before them? Yes. And it's actually revealed here in the chapter that talks about Sarah's death that there's an acquiring of a little bit of land. This land, this little bit of land, shows God planting the seeds of his promises in the midst of death. And so I want to read the entire chapter of Genesis 23 together. And if you have your Bibles, go there with me. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his bed and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you this tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and I entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that's in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? 
bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was at the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. There's a lot of repetition here. There's this buying of the field that's taking place, but don't miss the context of how it's taking place, when it's taking place. It's taking place in the face of Sarah's death. Death is often a wake-up call to us. In Ecclesiastes 7, the preacher says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. We naturally, I think, we naturally prefer to go to parties and celebrations. We don't naturally prefer to go to funerals or deathbeds. Yet it's often at the funeral when we're confronted with these greater realities. And if you're a believer in Christ and you go to a funeral, you're reawakened and reminded of the purpose of living. Almost every time that I facilitate a funeral or a gravesite, I share a specific story and an illustration. I talk about how when I was a youth pastor, when the weather was nice, I would go to a nearby, um, a near, nearby uh, grave site. And I would go on prayer walks. And then I would get distracted, and I'd look at the tombstones, and I would see the names of people but then I would also look at the dates. I'd look at the beginning date, I'd look at the end date, and sometimes I'd want to test my math skills and see how many years that meant, how long did they live. And then I would think to myself, even the people who were you know, 80 years old, 90-some years old, I think, wow, they, and they died in 1940, and I bet most people don't even know who they are anymore. We tend to think 80 years is a long time. 100 years is a very long time. But we're going to be forgotten. And the sad reality is that I think many people, you look at that tombstone and, and their life, their whole life is defined by beginning date, dash, end date. And many people live their lives for the dash. Their whole life is defined in a dash. That's sad. Because Jesus, when he was on this earth, he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is over our life and extends beyond because it's eternal, right? 
And so Jesus calls us to live, not, not for the dash, not even for those two dates. He calls us to live beyond the dates for eternity. Because there is a future after our death. This world is not it. Do you know that? This world is just this much in comparison to eternity. I actually believe that Abraham and Sarah believe this. We read earlier from Hebrews 11. And in, and in Hebrews 11, when the author is talking about Abraham, Sarah, and the patriarchs, he says, these all died in faith. These all include Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The author of Hebrews makes it clear that Abraham and Sarah were seeking a greater land, a greater home. They believed that there was a resurrection and there was a life after death. Sarah was seeking a homeland, a better heavenly country, and she arrived there before Abraham did. Will Sarah's death destroy Abraham's faith? Here's the question. He's gone through trials in the past with his son as well. Now this is happening. <sighs> What's the point? What's the point of following God if people are just going to die? But see, Abraham was seeking a better homeland. He was seeking a better homeland, and in seeking that better homeland, on his way to eternity, he believed that God's promises that God made in the past, those were seeds for this life that were going to flourish in the life to come. So Abraham actually acts with faith in the Lord even in the midst of Sarah's death. He, the living, takes to heart the realities that the house of mourning preaches, seeking to watch God continue to plant his promises in this broken world. The brokenness where there is death, the brokenness where there needs to be a serpent crusher to come to remove the death and the brokenness. And this serpent crusher will come through the seed of the woman, through Sarah, through Rebecca. But this serpent crusher also has to come through the woman into a land. So Sarah's death becomes the ground of the promises for land. And I want to highlight a few things about Abraham that I hope that we can see in this text, where we can see Abraham's faith in God's goodness. As we look into this text, we see Abraham is a sojourner. We see Abraham confesses that he is. He acknowledges it. He lives in this reality. In verse 4, Abraham, in humility, says to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I might bury my dead out of my sight. Notice here, Abraham doesn't say, listen, God promised me this land 
I am so frustrated. My wife is dead. I'm just going to take it. That's not what he says. He says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner. Those two words put together would be kind of like a modern translation of saying, I'm a resident alien. I I have no claim on anything here. Yet Abraham is wanting a legal claim to have a proper grave for Sarah. See, I, I, I love this example of Abraham because here's a man who has the most glorious promise of God given to him while at the same time he really is a sojourner awaiting a greater homeland. He doesn't feel the need to fight for the land. Instead, he asks. Because the point so many lessons that he learned in the past was not to grasp, right? Not to try to take or to steal, but to trust. And so I'm a sojourner here. And he asks. We also see Abraham truly trusting God's promises. Because traditionally, culturally, in that time period, people would go back to their homelands for burials. Abraham wasn't born in Canaan. If he wanted to go with tradition, he would go back to where he was from. But he doesn't do that. The land of his sojournings is a symbol and a pointer to a greater homeland. Sarah is going to be planted here as a sign of God's faithful promise of land. She's the matriarch of Israel. Now keep in mind that this site, this burial site, is the burial site for all the patriarchs. In Genesis 50, we're told that when Jacob died, he was taken back to this cave to be buried. To this day, to this day, after the Western Wall in Jerusalem, this tomb still exists, and it is the most sacred site for the Jewish people outside of the Western Wall. Why? Why? Because it reveals... God's promise that there is a homeland that he is going to give to the children of Abraham. So just like the birth of Isaac was joyous, so in the midst of this sorrow, this purchase of land would be strengthening not only to Abraham, but to his posterity after him. In the face of death, in the face of death, Abraham Trust the Lord's promise. He trusts that God's going to keep his promise. He trusts and believes that death doesn't destroy God's promises. He doesn't say, well, I guess she's dead, so therefore, who cares about land? No. I trust the Lord. And he trusts God's provision. Keep in mind, actually, in verse 10, for example, we read that Abraham is speaking in front of all who went in at the city of his gate. That means that Abraham is actually speaking to the lawmakers. He's speaking in front of other people, but the people who are at the entrance of the gate, contextually in those cultures, the people who are at the gate were the leaders of the city. Those are the people who make the laws. Abraham is not just talking to some people and saying, hey, you give me this, I'll give you. He's saying, I want this legal. I want this land. And he's trusting the Lord. The leaders meet, they make legal decisions, and now Abraham is seeking for a burial place. He's recognizing he's an alien, he knows he can't lay claim to anything, 
He humbly acknowledges his sojourning. And in the midst of all of this, and his trusting in the Lord, it's so intriguing to me that in verse 6, we read of the Hittites' response to him. When they say, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying the dead. I think that we should be tremendously encouraged by the faithfulness of God by reading something like that. We have seen multiple stories where Abraham has not blessed other people groups, right? Because of his own fear, because of his own desire for control. And yet, clearly, over the years and over the decades, God had been working in Abraham to such degrees that they're at a point of where they're saying, you're like a prince of God among us. They see something different with Abraham. I say that should encourage us because do you realize that if you have the grace of God in your life, God does not give up on you. And God doesn't just leave you in your weaknesses and sins. We do have weaknesses and sins, but God promises to grow us. Isn't that amazing? That God has that patience towards us. And he has that patience towards Abraham. In Abraham's sojourning, through Abraham's actions of faith in the Lord, God has grown his faith, exemplified himself to other people. They know something's different about Abraham. And this kind of reminds me of in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul encourages us as Christians on how we ought to live in this world. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I think about this because I think this is, this is how Abraham was living. Right? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with, say that, all. Live peaceably with some? Live peaceably with most? No, as much as it depends on you. And it doesn't just say in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but do what is honorable. He says actually give thought to it. Because, you know, sometimes it can be really hard. Do you agree? I don't know how. I don't know what to do. God, help me. Grace me. Help me to give thought. To, to, to live peaceably with all. This is an example the scriptures tell us in the New Testament. We're sojourners in this world. So we ought to pick up on this example of Abraham and ask the Lord to give us grace that we might have a similar testimony because we are princes and princesses of God because of Jesus Christ. But there's more to his trust here. Abraham's trust enabled him to ask for this cave. There's humble boldness And this humble boldness leads him to a strong legal request. When Abraham says in verse uh, verse 9, for the full price, let him give it to me. And when we think for the full price, it just sounds like I'm going to pay full price or I'm paying MSRP. I'm not asking for any deal here. But actually in the Hebrew, there's, there's a little bit different nuance to it. It's not just for the full price. It's a... I am going to pay, and this sale is final. Like there's, for the full price means there's no fine print on this. 
There's no way it can be taken back. I'm going to pay, and it's going to be mine. Okay? It's final. I would also say that's, that's trust for Abraham to make that statement. I know I'm a resident alien. I know I lay no claim to anything. And I am saying, give me that. That will be totally mine. You can't take it back. Then, as the story goes on, Abraham gets beyond what he's asked for. He requests for the cave at the edge of Ephron's field, and then Ephron takes it a step further and says, you can have all the land next to the cave. Now, it's actually kind of interesting. There's, there's one other situation in the Old Testament that is very similar to this situation and how it's described, and it's when King David is actually going to purchase the threshing floor, and the owner of the threshing floor says, I will give it to you without, without any pay. And David's response is, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. I wonder if this is the attitude of Abraham because the stories connect in how they progress. You see, God gave Abraham his wealth, right? God has been taking care of Abraham the whole time. God has then given him a son. God has promised to him a daughter-in-law. God has promised that he is going to have offspring as much as the sand on the seashore. And Abraham is saying, God is going to provide this land, and God has given me this, and this is God's money. And Abraham, Abraham is not... Abraham's not concerned about being taken advantage of in this, which is, which is also intriguing because actually based off of some context and the cultures in that time period, it seems I lean in the direction of saying, you know, the 400 shekels was a ridiculous price that was being asked for for that land. Um, Ephron sounds humble, but then, then the next statement, it's like he just adds in like how much it costs. It seems a little shady. <laughs> What is 400, you know? All right, you said it. Okay, so here's the 400. But this is God's money. This is God's provision. God made the promises. Here's the 400 shekels for this land. God is planting the seeds of his land promise here and has provided for Abraham. The death of Sarah has not hindered God's promise. Instead, her death has become the impetus for his promises to continue and to flourish. Now that's intriguing to me. That's very intriguing to me that the first acquirement of land related to God's promise is a tomb. I love how a man by the name of Alan Ross describes this scene, and he actually takes us to the overall teaching of Genesis. And he says this, the promise of the land is one of the major themes of Genesis, but so is death. Death entered the race by sin, and the death of the patriarchs was a harsh reminder of the presence of evil. It brought out the mourning, but death in this passage became the reason for hope. 
In life, the patriarchs were sojourners. In death, they were heirs of the promise and occupied the land. Abraham knew death didn't stop God's promises. Instead, death became the beginning to God's greater promises. And so Ross goes on and he says, what God has in store for us is far greater than what we now experience. These are some of the great realities that I think we should ponder. We should ponder as we consider Sarah's death. These are the realities I think Abraham believed. Abraham believed there was a resurrection. And so, so then we can ask, what does that mean for us? These are realities that we should believe in the face of death. These are the realities we should believe in the face of a dying world. And in the deaths that we experience daily, God's promises are sown in the seedbed of a dying world. God's promises are sown in the seedbed of our own deaths. And only God can do that. Do you believe that? It's true. God's promises are planted in this life and bear fruit in eternity. Therefore, we ought to trust God's promises and live today with eternity in view, even in the face of death. Like what the Apostle Paul said, his short, bold mantra, to live is what? Christ. And to die is gain. Can you imagine what his detractors thought of him? They would say, all right, we're going to kill you. To die is gain. All right, we're going to make you live. It's all about Jesus. Right? Because God is always with us. And we're not just living for now. I hope you're not just living for the dash. God has set us free to live for eternity. And that would affect us in how we live today. Now, some of you could say, I don't know, I think you're reading too much into this, maybe. But let me just briefly add that final part of the main idea that this does bear fruit into eternity. God's promises are planted in this life and bear fruit for eternity. When Jesus was speaking with the Sadducees over a bodily resurrection, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. Jesus' response to them was this. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush? By the way, just a side note, I always love it when Jesus says to these people who have studied the Bible their whole life, have you not read? <laughs> like, whoa. Okay, very stressful moment. How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus says, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are alive. That's what Jesus is saying. Sarah is alive. This life, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this life is only the beginning to eternal life. And the serpent crusher, Jesus, truly reversing the curse, where there will be someday no more sadness, no more sorrow, no more pain. See, that's why we see in Hebrews eleven sixteen as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham and Sarah knew there was life after death. 
Do you realize? You know that. Do you know they knew that? They knew that the serpent crusher had to come through the seed of the woman. Abraham knew that his future posterity needed to have land so that a woman could give birth to the serpent crusher. And so then we read in Galatians, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then Paul goes on and says that all of us who have turned from our sins and turned to Jesus are then heirs of God. Meaning God becomes our passion and our prize and we get to live with him forever and ever in complete satisfaction and joy in him. How is that possible? How can that be? Well, we know it's because Jesus took the curse humanity deserved. Jesus accomplished the perfection that none of us could attain. I hope, I hope and pray that you know the Savior Jesus. Because Jesus then, when he was on this earth, he spoke to his disciples and he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Can you just stop there? I mean, if you grew up in church like me, you memorize these verses. Why would Jesus say, let not your hearts be troubled? Is this world troubling? Is it? Are there problems? There's difficulties? There's pains that we experience? And then Jesus, let not our hearts be troubled. Why? Why not? Look around. And Jesus is saying, look up. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Wait, that sounds like a city whose builder and maker is God. Right? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. I think some of us, many of us maybe, we're still too anchored to this world. We can read verses like this and go, yeah, 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 I know that, but look at my life. And Jesus reverses it. No, no, no. This is what death is in this life. But God promises to sow seeds for eternity. Look at your life. Look at eternity. And trust that God is always good. And God always provides. And just like a cave led to the fulfillment of the promise of the land for the Israelites, the death of Jesus is the foundation of all of our hope. Because he absorbed the curse that came through Adam's sin, and then through his death and resurrection, he grants new resurrection life for all who turn from their sinfulness and trust in him for reconciliation with God. So the implication truly is we must trust God. Trust God's promises. Live today with eternity in view. Think about last week when I said write down your yeah, but statements. Maybe it's still there inside of you. Look to him. 
in that reality because that is reality. I think of the author of Hebrews when he, when he speaks about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and these other people who had faith in the Lord. He spurs the people on with an exhortation, the readers. And you might be very familiar with this. And he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. By the way, Jesus did not love the pain and shame. Do you love the pain and shame of trials? No. But Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and conquered death. And Jesus' conquering means if you've trusted him, you conquer. You conquer. Lay aside the weights. Lay aside the sins. The the mental imagery here is grandstands looking at the, the track. And you're on the track of life and you're running. And who's at the finish line? Jesus. Jesus is at the finish line. Look to the finish line. Look to Jesus and run with all your might. How can you not? If you know who Jesus is, how can you not run? How can that not motivate you and enthrall you? There he is. And to his arms, I run. Our home is set. Our Savior has sealed eternity. Even our deaths in this life are seeds for resurrection fulfillments. So let's together trust God's promises, living today with eternity in view. And let's pray. Father, hallowed be your name. Oh, I pray, Lord, that these words wouldn't just be theological ramblings or that we would know these things as as biblical truths, but we need you to unite our hearts to what we know to be true. We need this to be applied to our lives, or else, as the Apostle James says, we don't really believe it. So, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Draw us closer to you. Help us to not live in fear of this world, but in the joy and freedom that you provide for us in Jesus Christ. Grace us to truly trust and obey you. And may our souls increasingly be at rest in you, in Jesus' name. Amen. And hear these words of God to us as a church family. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.